everyone. I hope you're doing well. You might hear it in my voice that I have a sinus infection. Oh, we have been sick, sick at the Brick House. And of course, you know, we thought it was COVID because there were fevers and there was cough and there was all the things, but a negative for COVID yet again. So it's not going to be a very COVID Christmas, thankfully. And, you know, while my children were sick and my husband was sick, I was just sitting there going, at least it isn't the week of Christmas. So anyway, the show must go on. And it is the end of 2021. Like, can you guys believe that? Can you believe that we are done with this year? Like, I feel like this year just started. I'm like, how did this go by so quick? Am I just getting older and now the years just go by like weeks? Or was this year just incredibly short for a lot of people? I just feel like I was just pregnant and expecting a baby and now I have a seven month old. It's just crazy. So it went by so quickly. I hope you guys got a lot accomplished, but I also hope that you took time to celebrate your wins, celebrate your accomplishments. You know, that's really what this time of year is about, celebration, right? And I know a lot of people, myself included, might work hard to kind of shore up the year so that we can rest and unplug and really use it for a time to, you know, take away from work. But, you know, we shouldn't just have to rest. Hopefully you've set yourself up for a life and a work life where you're not just like dying to rest because you've burnt out all year. So make that a goal if you didn't do that. Um, But hopefully you can use this time to really celebrate. So I would love you guys to, you know, during this end of year time, pause and reflect back and really like take some time to write out a list of what did you accomplish? Like what did you set out this year to do that you actually did or you started or what were any like milestones or realizations that you made? Really reflect on the positive things that happened in 2021 and then set like an actual celebration time. Like what are you going to do? Like I feel like we say we celebrate successes and we're like, oh yeah, we had some wins. Let's celebrate our wins. Like it's something that at least in a lot of, um, like workplace cultures, they, they say they're celebrating successes, but I don't know that it ever really feels like a celebration and it doesn't really like incentivize us to do more, right? It's just like an acknowledgement. And I think that the reflection and writing it down and the acknowledgement obviously is what comes first, but we need to actually set time to celebrate. And if you're wondering like, yeah, that's great, Rebecca, I would love to celebrate, but I don't really know what that looks like. If you guys are interested at all in how do you really maximize celebrating your wins and if you wonder how can you fit in celebrations like fun things into your work life and actually count it as work time to make sure that you are celebrating your wins, that you're not just boop, 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 on to the next, right? Because that's what we do. We accomplish things and we're on to the next and we feel like everything's not happening fast enough, but we've done so much. So we need to build in those times and then your life can look like a whole bunch of celebrations and it's all on work time because you built it in. So if you guys are interested in how to do that and how to do that effectively for you, your family, your team, 
then um, I talk about that actually coming out tomorrow on the Harvesting Results Show, which is my Cthulhu channel. So if you look up, if you're looking listening to this podcast, if you look up Harvesting Results, you should find my other podcast that has to do uh, with helping nonprofits serve people. And we talk all about celebrating successes, winning, and uh, being able to celebrate those wins on that channel tomorrow. So check it out. Show that channel some love. I would love you guys to you know leave reviews for it. It's also a YouTube channel. So if you want to go on YouTube and you want to look up Cthulhu Nonprofit Academy, you can see me giving advice for nonprofits there. But a lot of the advice like celebrating our wins is applicable to so so to everyone, right? So many more people than just nonprofit executive directors. So again, that show is Harvesting Results and it's on the Cthulhu Nonprofit Academy. There's also a Facebook group. If you look up Cthulhu Nonprofit Academy, you can check uh, out that Facebook and um, connect with other people as well that are in the nonprofit space. All right. So today's guest I'm really excited about because she is a rock star, an absolute rock star. So Leah Angel Daniel, she's an educator. She's a writer. She's a visionary. She's a best-selling author. She's an inspirational speaker and she's a mentor. Leah's mom was unable to care for her properly and she ended up in foster care. So she is a former foster care youth, but she discovered at an early age that education would be the key to her success to overcome those daunting statistics that we know of many foster care youth. So this encouraged her leadership and her educational journey, and she lives her life with the philosophy that she should always lead by example while also giving back to the community, and that gave her a chance to turn her negative situation into a positive outcome. She has her master's degree. She's almost got her PhD, which is crazy, and she also... um has founded a nonprofit helping transitioning foster youth. So foster youth that are transitioning out of foster care into adulthood, and it's called Fostering Greatness. So I'm going to roll that intro and you can hear from Leah about the incredible work she is doing. I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast. I started this podcast to understand from all perspectives how we can help end the foster care crisis. The overwhelming response was we need to support our local community. Unwanted, abandoned, orphaned children are the community's responsibility. We must support, guide, love, invest, raise up generations that will nurture, love, and support their own children to end this crisis. So the purpose of this podcast is to build an army of people that are interested and willing to take responsibility of our foster youth and who are supportive of foster and adoptive families. This is the on-ramp for people who want to get involved but might not know where to start. I want this to be a place where community members feel like they can make a difference, where they feel good enough to make that difference, and believe that they can be a big deal in the life of a child. Thanks for being part of our community and make sure to join the conversation in the Stable Moments podcast Facebook group. Together, we can end the foster care crisis. Leah, I'm so happy to have you with us. I know that you're super ambitious and that you have done a whole bunch um, with your life and with your education. And um, I'm really excited to hear about that and hear about all that you're bringing to your community. But can you quickly just bring us back to the beginning and tell me a little bit about your family of origin and a little bit about your childhood so that we can understand, you know, where you come from. 
Yes. Um, hi, and thank you for having me, Rebecca. I'm really excited about being here on the show today. Um, my name is Leah Angel Daniel, and my place of origin is Buffalo, New York. And for anybody who doesn't know where Buffalo, New York is at, we are one of the coldest places where people talk about the snow near Niagara Falls. So people talk about Buffalo all the time when the winter time comes because we have massive amounts of snow. Um, I grew up here, uh, went away to college in Oswego, New York, which is near Syracuse, New York, and then came back to Buffalo. Um, currently, this is where I am residing and where I am running my uh, nonprofit organization, Fostering Greatness, Inc., um, and we're in Erie County. So. I grew up in the foster care system from the age of 11 until the age of 21. I am the youngest of six children that my father has and the oldest of five children that my mother has. And when I um, went into the foster care system, I had no idea what foster care was. I had no idea about the transition or the pathway that my life was about to take. All I knew was that my mom had left me and my sister home alone for a certain amount of days with no food, no phone, and that now people were asking me a lot of questions. I was being told what to um, express and say about what was happening in my home with my mom and that I thought everything would be okay. And after then it wasn't. Family members did not keep me and my sister. We were put into the foster care system and that was due to mainly uh, the family not wanting to deal with my mom. My mom suffered from schizophrenia and um, she, her drug of choice in hand, that schizophrenia, which caused her to be violent and she was also an alcoholic. So you can only imagine um, just some of the chaotic situations that would occur, you know, um, if my mom felt threatened or any of those things and she felt like the family was trying to take her children from her. So um, in her mind, everybody else was the enemy and she was doing what she needed to do. And um, if you would have asked my mom at that time, you know, um, about her children or leaving us, she would say she always took care of her children. And what I've learned is that the definition of taking care of a child, many people have different answers. And so my mom thought that because she provided shelter, because she, you know, bought us the nicest clothes and things like that, but due to her drug addiction, things were not consistent, you know, all of the time. So I just believe she was doing the best she could do with the, the toolkit she had at that moment. And so um, going into foster care, like I said, it was just um, something that I never imagined that me and my sister would be a part of. And then once we were thrust into the system, it was just, um, it, it was an emotional roller coaster, you know, living in people's homes who, you know, you have to really learn the dynamics of their home, which is different from where I came from, I was very independent. Um, it was times that I was in people's homes where I could not open up their refrigerator. I could not sit on their couch. Um, a lot of these things took an emotional toll on me because I didn't understand this. Um, there were some homes where there were other children and because I, school was like my, you know, my pathway to separating me from reality with what was going on in my home life, I really excelled in school. And so maybe when I was in a home where there were other kids and school was not their thing, um, they would feel like, you know, I was a shining star and their parents were acknowledging that I got good grades. And so it would cause um, adversity um, between me and the other kids that were there because they would say, oh, you, you think you're better, you know, you think you're this, that's why you're in foster care, your mother on drugs, you know, all those different types of hurtful things. And I don't think people really realize or understand what youth go through 
as far as like when they're placed in foster care, not just the simple fact that you're living in someone else's home, but all of the dynamics, no one explaining different things to us, what's happening, what's happening with our parents, um, or even asking us, you know, what would we like to do? You know, and I know at the age of 11, I probably couldn't give them a whole bunch of different scenarios of, of what I would have liked, but at least um, fostering a relationship where I could trust them to let them know what was going on in the homes. That would have been helpful for me. Yeah, yeah, I bet so. And as the oldest of your sisters um, that were with your mom, were you able to stay with all five? Well, it was only me and one sister. My mom had, she had five kids, but it was three boys and two girls. But we had big age gaps between us. So when me and my sister, uh, we were the ones put into foster care together at the time. I had one little brother and he was living with his father and my mother was pregnant. So with my other little brother. So um, yeah, me and my sister stayed together from my age of 11 until 14. The home that she decided to stay in, um, her foster mom adopted her, but chose not to stay there because it was very, the foster mom was very emotionally abusive, you know, mm. and that was the home where we couldn't open her refrigerator. We couldn't sit on her couch. She had locks on her doors to where you needed a key to get in or out. If you got in trouble, you were on punishment for a month, you know, all of these different type of things. And she would say horrible things about our mother. Um, she would tell us we weren't mm. going to be anything and what, you know, just nasty and mean things, nothing to help build us up as, you know, as youth who are going through something. Yeah. So it was, it was a very, very confusing and dark time in the beginning. Yeah. So, you know, some people think of children being removed from a situation that has been deemed either abusive or neglectful as that must be relieving to a child to be you know, at least somebody's validating that this isn't normal and that they're getting put in a new situation. Mm -hmm. For you, did, was there anything about this situation where you felt like, oh, okay, what we were living in wasn't normal and was validating? Um, or do you really feel like you, you wanted to stay with your, your biological mom? Well, as an adult now, looking back, I feel like... Um, there's a lot of dysfunction in people's families, you know, but when you're in that family, it's normalized for you. So people on the outside looking in may look at it as dysfunction, but this is what you're used to as an individual in the family. So I don't know what would have happened had we stayed with our mom. Um, our mom was still in addiction, even when, you know, I aged out of foster care. Uh, she had her own, you know, demons to fight. She had her own things in life that she went through growing up. And, you know, I get it. I understand. But looking back, I think foster care was one of the better things or better places for me to be because it changed me as an individual. Um, I was provided opportunities that I know that had I not been in foster care, I would not have had access to those things. And for the mentors and people that I met um, along that path, um, I think that was very helpful to help me to become, again, the adult that I am today. Yeah, that's awesome. So I want to talk to you about this education because I know education kind of became the answer for you and you really put your nose down and um, that was your outlet. Um, so one, how did education become your outlet? And do you feel like 
you were in a place where, because uh, there's so many kids that I feel like education's like secondary because they have to deal with all this trauma. They have to deal with all this stuff that's going on in the outside world. So education is the last thing that they could think about. Um, so do you feel like because you actually made your coping mechanism education that some of um, the trauma that you were going through or the emotional stuff that you were needing to deal with, people didn't see in you because, well, she's getting good grades and mm -hmm. she seems to be doing fine. Well, before my mother um, became an addict, she instilled like a strong educational foundation within me. Um, out of my mother's children, I was the only one that wasn't a drug addicted baby because she was not on drugs at the time. So I had an opportunity to experience her, you know, as a mom, as someone who was caring, as someone who, you know, looked out for me and, and wanted the best for me with a clear mind. So that educational part was just something that was already instilled in me. Um, the other thing was that I had really good relationships with my teachers. Um, I have always felt like I was older in mind than I am in age. So I would always talk to my teachers and ask them questions and really just try to build a relationship with them. And so when I was in high school, like I just learned so much. My guidance counselor really opened many doors for me as far as to apply for scholarships and different things. And I just wanted to escape Buffalo. I just wanted to um, just really get away from the whole systemic and systematic issues that came with foster care. You know, I didn't want to be singled out. I didn't want to be ostracized. Um, I didn't want to be different. You know, I just wanted to navigate my life in the way that I wanted to. So when I went away to college, that was like a whole life-changing experience for me um, due to the, I guess, the the community part, the social aspect part, you know, just really joining clubs and, you know, getting to know how other people live from different countries. And, you know, I just didn't have to deal with the reality of my mom being on drugs and yada, yada, yada. And that whole spiel, you know, people always asking you the same questions or, you know, just uh, being disrespectful because, you know, of the situation that I'm in and things like that. I didn't have to deal with that for school. And it was a whole different world for me. And so that's where I wanted to stay. And that's, you know, that's the type of person that I wanted to evolve into and to become. So um, that's why I loved education. And I, I am a lifelong learner. I love to learn. I love to teach and I'm just, you know, I just knew that that would be the route for me to just escape the situation that I was in. And it was a positive escape, you know, not going into any of the at-risk factors that usually they correlate with foster care youth and especially foster care youth of color. Yeah, yeah, no, that's awesome because I, I think, you know, people can go one or two ways and you can have, and, and we've talked before on this podcast about some of these um, coping mechanisms that actually, you know, on the outside would really look like strengths, people pleasing, um, uh, education, you know, perfectionism, needing to do really good. Um, but it sounds like you were really given an opportunity to just reinvent yourself. Like you weren't, you know, you had an opportunity to say, this is me as an individual and not my circumstances. 
Um, and it sounds like you were part of a pretty good community that let you do that and kind of received you mm -hmm. well, Yes, which is, which is awesome. So going to college and having that experience, what was it about the community that you felt like was really welcoming? Like, do you think that that was more of the community or do you think it was more of your personality diving in and really taking advantage of all the opportunity there? I think it was both. And I actually had an opportunity to build community with some other students um, because we went to school earlier um, for the a program that they had there for the summer. So I was able to build friendships and things like that beforehand. And so basically when we started school in the fall, I already knew some people, you know, and some of the older people, like um, in my building, I lived in an international building. So a lot of, um, we had to do like community building stuff together once a week. So I had an opportunity to really learn how to do those things and really be immersed in different cultures and things like that. That's really, really cool opportunity. Um, so did you access, did you get free college because of foster care benefits? And did you have anybody like who helped you figure out what college you're going to go to or do applications? Like it's a whole thing. Yeah. My guidance counselor was really, really helpful um, with the process. My social worker, not so much. Um, I don't think she really knew a lot of things and, and like my guidance counselor, you know, that's their job. That's what they do. And when I graduated from high school, I had 13 scholarships. So room and board wasn't fully covered, um, by a lot of the funding that I had available, um, for, you know, like tap and pill, they didn't cover fully everything. And I was an EOP student educational, um, opportunity, you know, program where they pay for your books and things. So I did have some leeway and then I had a work study job, which that, uh, barely covers your toiletries when you're at school. But what I did my second and, um, my second year of college, all the way until I graduated was I became a resident assistant in IRA. So where they pay for a uh, room and half board for you. And I didn't have to take out any loans for my undergrad or master's degree. So that was really good. That is so good. Um, and, and well-deserved, obviously your grades were good enough to get you some scholarships. Um, so what made you choose? I know your, your bachelor's was communication, yes. marketing, journalism, something like that. Broadcasting and mass media. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So what made you choose that? Well, I went to a performing arts high school and that was my background then. So I wanted to become a news reporter or a field journalist. Um, that's just who I am, just wanting to always know a story and really get things out there and educate other people and just learn. And so it really sparked my interest. And when I knew that this particular college um, had uh, revamped itself and was known for uh, their particular communications program and Al Roker, which is a weatherman, had given them money and went to that college. And I was like, oh, I definitely want to go there. So that's why I decided to do that. That's nice. That's awesome. So when you get out of college with that degree, what's your what's your next step? So I decided to stay at college because I wasn't ready to quite come back to Buffalo yet. So I stayed for my master's degree and I ended up getting my master's degree in English. And at that time, I had a couple of professors who took me up under their wings. And that's when I started getting into human rights and, um, you know, different things about women's rights and teaching those different type of classes and became a TA. So just really learning about things that were happening in the world, like the Million Man March and 
all of those different type of things. So just really looking at advocacy, policy change, you know, um, where I could insert myself in and to make some type of difference, you know, with the knowledge that I had and, and with who I was growing as, you know, a young woman, what could I give, you know, in that sense? Yeah, that's awesome. So I read that you um, founded Words Have Wings. Mm-hmm. So, and you've founded Fostering Greatness, mm-hmm. um, which um, is the organization which made me reach out to you. Um, so can you tell me about Words Have Wings um, and what like prompted you to start that? Right. So when I came back to Buffalo, um, I came back to Buffalo because I actually came back to get my siblings who were still in care. Um, Something traumatic had happened to one of my younger brothers. And I actually had a job waiting for me in Burbank, California to be an assistant to the writers for the Mario Lopez show for Warner Brothers. So I gave up that, you know, I gave up that to come back for my brother who had been adopted twice and given back twice. And he was placed in a psychiatric center where he was violated um, in there and, I came back and just got him. Um, And then I ended up getting the youngest brother too. So I had my two younger brothers. Um, And at that time I was an adjunct English professor. So getting my master's in English prompted me to teach, you know, what I had been doing as a TA. And a lot of my students, I just really, really felt like I should sew into them because when they go to school, they said that they felt like the professors didn't care about them. And it was so much going on in the world at the time. And they were unaware of these different things. And then they wanted to know how does an English class coincide with what they were majoring in? So I had to explain that to them and how important it was to know how to write and not just to um put something as if you're doing a text message or something on social media where it has to be different for a business letter, you know, those different type of things. So words have wings, healing through writing was birthed through my English uh, classes that I did with my students when I was an adjunct professor. And then from there, I began to write curriculum for at-risk groups like uh, human sex trafficking victims, who I would go to the safe houses and talk to them and with youth that were in the foster care system, um, just talking to them about what they want to write about and teaching them how to monetize off of their writing. So, you know, just changing those different things and letting them know that any type of story that they decided to tell about their life or just about something they were interested in, that they, it was, people would be interested in it and that they could make some type of money from that instead of going into survival mode and doing something else that was maybe illegal. So that's so cool because like, I'm just thinking, Oh, of course it's just writing's healing and getting your stories out healing. And that that's where it ends. But I love that you're like, well, no, make money doing that. Like, yeah, you know, be be self-sufficient with your writing and just like, what does it do for your self-worth when you realize like, no, somebody would want to read this. Like, this is a valuable contribution. Right. And reading each other because a lot of things they did not said you're more alike than you are different. So teaching them to build community amongst each other. So any groups that they were in. So, you know, a lot of us didn't have that happily ever after when we went back to our parents who were clean or had a different change in their life. So if you don't go back to that situation, where do you go? Who do you depend on? And so I would I would teach them that they can depend on each other because they would know, you know, they can understand where each other has come from. They've had similar experiences of being in the foster care system or 
whatever situation they were in, whatever group I was with, and that they could learn how to work together. So tell me about essentially raising your brothers. What was that experience like for you, um, understanding that their experience is different than your experience and, and dealing with the, the heartache of mm-hmm. what had happened to them? Right. Um, I was very naive. I was 23 years old with two teenage boys and not really knowing about the trauma that they had really gone through. And I wasn't prepared. You know, um, a lot of things were not explained to me from the social workers um, who had given me my brothers and they had known a lot of things that had happened, especially with my one particular brother. Um, who I initially came back for, he was legally blind. He had been through a lot of trauma. He was burned with hot water when he was um, at the age of one. And he had been through a lot. You know, he had been adopted twice and given back twice. I mean, that's traumatic, you know, not even knowing, you know, you're at school. You don't know that your your foster parents is like, listen, not your adoptive parents saying, you know, I just don't want him any longer. And he felt thrown away. And um, how do you expect the child to act? you know, that has been taken from their parent. And then his father was killed in 2005. So it was, he had been through so much and then being legally blind, you know, he couldn't do the things that the rest of the kids do. He couldn't go play football, basketball in the event that a ball hit him. He could go completely blind. He did not want to learn braille. He was just very angry. And I would tell him, I understand, I get it, but that's still not an excuse to behave the way you behave, to curse out your teachers at school, to act violent, to do all these things. And I would have him write. And to this day, he is 26. And he'll say, you know, I'm such a good writer, Leah, because you would sit and make me write all day until my hands cramped up about my feelings and why I was doing the things I was doing because I wanted him to think. And I told him as a young black man, listen, you're not going to keep getting all these chances. You know, the world is not forgiving of young black men, you know, and you have to think and you have, and I, like I would tell him, I am not belittling or not acknowledging what you have gone through. But at the end of the day, um, you have to make better decisions. You have to do better if you want to be better. And so, you know, their situations were different than mine because I knew what I wanted to do. I knew that I didn't want to stay in the hurtful situations and all of that different type of stuff. But a lot of times, um, young people will stay in those situations because it's familiar to them, you know, that hurt, Mm -hmm. that pain. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, when I got married and I got pregnant, my brother suffered from Oedipus complex and he tried to attack me. So I had to let him go. And I felt horrible, you know, that I had to choose between, you know, my unborn baby and him, but I had to protect myself. And I didn't want to live in fear that something would happen, you know, Mm -hmm. and with Oedipus complex, which, you know, his social worker and everybody knew all along, they did not have my brother on any type of medicine or in any type of uh, therapy, which they should have. But with Oedipus complex, it's when um, a young person latches onto the dominant female in the home and small children cannot be around, you know? And so that was a danger, you know? So, um, he he just would not abide to any rules at the house. He was very defiant. Um, and now, like I said, now that I know that I'm older, 
You know, I understand that, you know, young people who feel like they've been abandoned and all these different types of things, their template, their outlook of the world is different. And even people who show that they care and love them, they still want to push you to the edge because they feel like, when it when is this person going to leave me too? When is this person going to do that? So I get it. It's understandable. But I didn't have a village to help me with him. You know, again, I reiterate, we had a big family, but nobody helped. And they actually were saying, don't get him. It's not your responsibility. It's not this. It's not that. But I knew how it felt to be in foster care, feeling like you're alone, like you don't have anybody, you know, and I didn't want him to feel that way. Oh, that's so much. That's, yeah. that's a lot. Um, and I love that you were able to to get him to write when you did and that he was able to do that. And it sounds like he wrote a lot and that you did have some um, powerful, meaningful years mm-hmm. in there with him. That was somebody that validated his experience and somebody that cared because, yeah, I mean, th- there's the anger and just not being able to make meaning of what's happened to you. But then the compounded trauma of just nobody validating that. No, ever, you know, people saying you're supposed to be here when you're here and not being able to um, understand or feel like you're understood by the world. So yeah, that seems super difficult um, decision to make, especially when you're pregnant. Um, And did your other brother, did he stay with you? Just for a little while. um, He wanted to basically, you know, be out in the streets. And so he decided to leave. Um, And when I say be out in the streets, he just, he didn't want to go to school. He didn't want to do the right thing. He got into some gang activity. So it just wasn't safe for him to stay with me because, you know, people were like shooting at him and different things. And so he decided to leave. Okay. So, So, yeah. And it's really like this depiction, like of the different outcomes, you know, that, that foster care can and does, we all know the statistics Mm -hmm. of, you know, foster youth. So is some of this, some of this, what led you to, um, founding fostering greatness? Absolutely. Um, the advocacy part, like I learned so much just advocating for my one brother who was legally blind, like, because there was no one to do it for him, you know, and to set things into place for him for therapy and to set things into place for him to just heal, you know? Um, and I think when they're young like that, had they done it sooner, I think it would have, he would have had a different outcome had those things been set into place for him before I even got him, you know? Um, and I just think, but by the time I got my brother, it was just like, he had already made up in his mind that he was just going to go against any and everything that, you know, was going to help him. He was going to do what he wanted to do. And um, the system failed him. And so I just said, you know, what if I can get through the youth before they even get this far, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's when I began to do programmatic things with Fostering Greatness, Inc. And um, as an alumni myself, we're more trusted than social workers or anybody else that's within the system. And I would just share parts of my story, you know, um, and just how, you know, I didn't have all the answers. I just did what I thought I should do. You know, I was the one that 
kept my siblings together and made sure that they knew who each other was. And my mother ended up going to prison while I was in high school. And so just really making sure that she knew everything that was going on with her kids. You know, I was like the glue that kept everything together. So when things didn't go the way that I thought they should go, I often share too about how I felt, you know, um, that I, I didn't have all the answers, that I knew things were missing, that, you know, um, social workers didn't have all the answers either. So how could I get more information to help the situation that I was in? And so I share all of those things. But when the pandemic happened, you know, um, that's when more youth were reaching out to me, you know, just talking about their situations, being homeless, talking about the things they had to do in order to have somewhere to stay. And I'm like, we need to have something available, a brick and mortar for them, because there's no reason that they should have to be in survival mode, you know, when there are things that are available for them to utilize. So that's where Fostering Greatness, where we went from just doing programmatic things to working on getting a building to supply housing for foster care youth and, you know, to assist them with getting the resources that they need instead of, you know, when they go down for services, maybe, you know, for a Medicaid or any of those things, and they feel, you know, disrespected and ostracized or have to tell their story over and over again. And we just want it to be different. And we wanted, you know, youth in care who are transitioning out or alumni or those, you know, who had been in care to know that there's something specifically for them, where they, it's a safe space, and where they know that they can thrive instead of being in survival mode. That is awesome. So you offer services for transitioning foster youth. Mm -hmm. And then is there part of the mission that is getting to foster youth before they're at transitional ages or? Well, I, I tend to talk youth that are in independent living groups. So the teenagers who are ready to, you know, to transition out or, you know, just in that area, just to think about some things, you know, um, what they want to do when they're getting ready to leave and just, you know, they don't know what they don't know, you know, mm -hmm. so just even offering like, uh, if you want to go to college, what are some options that are available, scholarships, different things, like really exploring those things with them. Do we need to do a college tour? You know, those different type of things. And then if they want to do workforce development, do they like to work with their hands? Do they want to do welding, plumbing, like exposing them to different things and seeing how they can have sustainability to where they don't have to depend on the system, where they feel independent, where they feel accomplished and they feel whole because they're able to do things on their own. How many kids do you encounter that are like, don't have a driver's license, don't have a car, don't have a GED, really need to get them to a point where that they can start thinking about secondary education or Job. Yeah, every story, every person is has been different with different challenges. Um, but a lot of a lot of them just either don't have housing, um, don't have stability, don't know where to go for different resources, don't know how to apply for their social security card, or was told something that they would have, you know, um, health care with Medicaid before they left the system. And when they go downtown, it's a totally different store, story. Excuse me. They um, don't know how to apply for the Section 8 vouchers that are supposed to be for foster care youth. So just really helping them navigate the system. Um, you know, because a lot of them just, you know, they become frustrated and discouraged when they are told that they have access to different things. But when they go to access these things, they're not able to get them. So why 
you know, I am like, why is this service needed? Meaning, how is this not just what happens when a kid is in foster care and they're aging out that they're set up with all of these things? Yeah. Um, well, certain, you know, the social workers are overworked, you know, and a lot of times they don't know themselves about the different resources that are available and things are constantly changing, you know? Um, so fostering greatness would be that one-stop shop, you know, where if they needed housing, that's available where we would be able to assist them with um, our program, which would be the Hank Rose um transitional and supportive living house um, that we would have access to, which we're working on now. And then also if they need that case management while staying there where they consistently have someone working with them in their life plan. And then for those who just need to come there, we have a resource room, you know, where they would be able to come and just talk about, you know, what they want to do if we need to meet biweekly or different things like that. But just knowing that they have somewhere to come specifically for their needs and they don't have anything like that right now. Once they leave the system, the slogan is once you're grown, you're on your own. So they don't have anything to come back to, you know, um, if when if and when they leave, you know, and they don't have, you know, just resources where people already know the system in general, where they don't have to sit and explain everything to them. And that's exhausting. Mm -hmm. So really someone like you would be more of an expert or could be, and I've been in this situation before too, where I'm more of an expert on the resources that are available than the current case managers, just because of turnover rate and them not understanding which funding is available or which applications you use to get what. So you really have to position yourself and your staff as, because then you, then you go back and advocate and you're like, no, I know the application exists. It's right here. We have it. Like, this is how you do it. You almost have to train some of the case managers to help you move it along. And yeah. it does take an advocate to do that, to get through and be the squeaky wheel on over overburdened uh, workers. Yes. So what do you see for the future of fostering greatness? I see um, that we will be successful with, um, with what we're trying to do right now and with what we're doing right now, I think it's something that's really needed. And I think, um, People have just been waiting for someone to break through the ice and provide something like this. And I think it will also help the system in general for, um, you know, the foster care system to, I guess, not to be looked at differently, but for the narrative to change. The narrative to change for the youth that are transitioning out, better outcomes for them, better statistical information, better for the cities that they live in where the crime rate will go down and they won't have to use as much government assistance because they, they know how to access sustainability through what they're trying to do as far as whether they're going for workforce development or education and, and knowing how to navigate those things and working on their template and how they look at the world and turning a negative situation into a positive outcome. That knowing that, yes, what they went through, it may be unfair, you know, um, the situation was not the greatest, but that they do have the power to change their lives into what they want to do and who they want to be, you know, as they grow and transition into adulthood. And then with the system seeing that these youth are determined and want to make a change, then maybe they'll be more proactive with um, assisting with this, this particular program and really learning more about the youth in care in general and not just looking at their behavior. So I think it'll just be a, a full change, a 360 for the system in general. And again, just getting that narrative to change because once these youth 
come out of survival mode and they feel good about themselves and they feel like, you know, they have that sense of belonging and they really know what they're about to do and people are supportive and they have that all the time where it's consistency um, all the way around the board. I feel like they'll be able to focus on the things that they want to do because when you're in survival mode all the time, you can't focus on the things that you, you know, you education and all these different types of things. You're trying to think about the bare necessities, a place mm -hmm. to eat. I mean, a place to sleep, a, you know, shelter, something to eat. All, those are basic necessities. And if you have children, you know, all of that's a, the next stressor, you know, all of that different type of stuff. And then the fact that if you're a certain age, you know, that adultification, well, you're 21 and you don't know A, B, C, and D. Well, if they were in 24 foster homes and, and living 24 different ways and there was really no foundational work set in place for them or opportunity to learn these things, how would they know? Right. So, again, just not judging them, walking with them on the path that they're on and assisting them, you know, like I said, with life skills, different things that are available for them. Yeah, and I can see that having a huge impact on generational foster care. I mean, if they are equipped to be productive members of society or self-sustaining um, and their own children don't go into care, mm -hmm. then that's breaking a huge cycle that we see. Um, and honestly, I feel like rather than continuing to harp on the system needs to have these things in place, you know, the system can contract services like yours and just pay people like you that know how to do it and are doing it well and say that model works great. Here's, you know, your grant and we're going to just refer our transitioning kids to your service. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what we're seeing a lot more of is these community based organizations, these grassroots efforts really being the answer and the change that we want to see. Mm -hmm. And the more that we can get those outcome, measure those outcomes and demonstrate the impact of those programs, mm -hmm. I think, you know, we're seeing more and more government grants go to like, hey, we'll just contract you to do it because we're not trying to recreate um, a fostering greatness within the state um, Department of Children's Services or whatever. So I think that that's a really good opportunity for for some of these grassroots um, community-based organizations like yours. So if you could give the community at large one message of like, how could they be involved? And they're like, you know what? I wanna help. What, what do you think that they could do? How can they get involved in this crisis? Cause I know a lot of people here, like, I don't know if I'm ready to be a foster parent. And they feel like that's like the only option. Mm -hmm. No, there are a lot of different options. Um, first of all, they can donate, they can become mentors, and they can just spread the information that's available. So if there's job opportunities available and they know of a foster care agency, um, send that to the independent living, you know, coordinator, you know, mm -hmm. as far as to give them the information that's needed. Um, again, we can sell one to a youth by uh, just really when they see them you know, out in the community by not treating them, you know, disrespectfully and really just sewing into them, saying a kind word, treating them like human beings. So you really don't have to just be a foster parent, you know, just do your part. Whatever you can do, just do your part. Mm, I love that. Well, how can we support your work and, and follow you? 
Well, um, Fostering Greatness, Inc., that's inc.org. You can follow us um, on social media. You can visit our website. You can donate. You can make suggestions. Um, and just tell other youth who you know may have a history of foster care or even alumni just about our organization because we do want to have uh, more alumni voices and representation so that youth who are in care know that there are successful foster care alumni out here who are doing great things and wouldn't mind, you know, speaking with them about, you know, their, their course of action that they took in their lives to become who they are today. So we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, Twitter, feel free to reach out. And again, my name is Leah Angel Daniel. If you want to follow me online too, I'm on all of those social media platforms also. That is awesome. Well, I love, I love your message. I love, you know, showing representation of foster youth or foster alumni that have gone on to do incredible things. We've had plenty of them on our podcast. And I think it's really important to just see that there's a possibility. And I love that you're sitting with some of these youth in your resource room and you're just like brainstorming, like, all right, what are, you, what are your strengths? What are your interests? Let's figure it out. You can do anything because that's a great exercise for anyone. But um, yeah, especially somebody that may lack self-worth or have never been told that they can be whoever they want to be. So I love it. Thank you so much for this today. It's been, it's been amazing. And um, I think it's going to be really inspiring for our community. Thank you so much. I appreciate you for having me. Man, isn't Leah a rock star? She is just killing it. And I love that she is offering her experience. She's turning her experience into a positive one. She is showing that uh, kids in foster care don't need to be statistics and she's helping them with resources in her community to help them transition into healthy adults. I just love that so much. I hope that you all have a beautiful holiday and that you get to spend some time reflecting on this last year and everything that you've accomplished, everything that you've gotten through, even if it's been just a really tough year, the fact that you've made it through, you've gotten through, you've survived it. Um, it's something to be celebrated. So take this time and, and really be intentional about how you are looking back and celebrating your wins. As always, I love to hear from you guys in the Stable Moments Podcast Facebook group. Let's keep the conversation going over there. Share this episode or any other episode that was helpful. I love to get the word out and you guys sharing it helps more community members get involved in the foster care crisis. All right, I will talk to you guys next year. Happy holidays. <laughs>